We're in chapter 25, verse 19. This is the next major unit. This is another Toledot, which is the account of, and is the account of Isaac. Now, once again, these account of has less to do with the actual person and more to do with what they produce. So basically, this is the Jacob story. You need to understand that this isn't just the Jacob story. This is the Jacob and Esau story. And I know it's so easy to focus on Jacob because he's the dominant main character. But the major tension here is Jacob and Esau. And basically, Jacob and Esau have this rivalry, and they're going to be divided. And the question is, will they be reconciled? And the story focuses a lot on the reconciliation with Esau. And I know it doesn't feel like that because there's going to be many chapters where it's Jacob and Laban. But they're told in such a way that the Esau lack of resolution is just lingering there in the background. And so just like the major conflict for Abraham was whether he was going to have a child or not, but yet there seemed to be so many other stories dominating it, that was still the predominant thing going on there. So Jacob's story is, we now enter into a section where two things are happening. And I mentioned this at the very, very, very first night. One, the stories become less episodic. We're actually going to begin, Abraham was less choppy than the first 11 chapters, but it still had this time gaps and all this kind of stuff. The Jacob story is going to become a lot more story-oriented. Story after story is going to kind of merge into the next one with very little choppiness. So the character development is far more deep, far more round and dynamic. At the same time, God becomes less active. And we're not going to really see God speaking to Jacob and appearing to Jacob like he did to Abraham. You're not going to see God directly putting his hands on everything like he was in the first 11 chapters. God is only going to appear to Jacob in visions. And so the first 11 chapters, God was directly speaking and putting his hands on everything. With Abraham's story, he kind of was just speaking here and there and showed up one time. Now he's only going to appear to Jacob in visions. And so there's this prominence given to the main characters and less of a prominence given to Yahweh, even though it's going to be so obvious that Yahweh is still intimately involved in every moment of his life. And even Jacob will finally admit that at the end. And so that's the transition you see here. And we go into the story. The other thing you're going to see is that this is a two-part story. And the first part is Jacob and Esau, and the second part part is Jacob's family. So the Jacob story will be his conflict with Esau and then his conflict with Laban, which is truly just a big giant metaphor for his conflict with Yahweh. And then you'll see his family kind of grow. And then you'll see a couple of his family um, interact. But when that comes to an end, it's going to launch fully into Jacob's family. And they're going to become the main characters starting in chapter 37. This is the new Toledot, the account of Isaac, who becomes very minor because he's more of a passive character, and the focus is on Jacob. So verse 19, this is the account of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham began, became the father of Isaac, and when Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Arminian, of Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Arminian. 
Isaac prayed to Yahweh on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And Yahweh answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the children struggled inside her, and she said, If this is going to be like this, I'm not sure I really want to be pregnant. So she asked Yahweh, and Yahweh said to her. So immediately the story begins with her barrenness, which immediately roots you back into the Abraham story, and the idea that this woman is barren just like Sarah. And remember, Rebekah and Isaac have become the new Sarah and Abraham, by their marriage and dwelling in the tents. And so God is reminding you that he is the one who continues the line of Abraham on through a miraculous conception where Rebecca has been barren. I mean, Isaac's 40 years old and he still can't have kids. This is the focus. Now, the other thing that you notice is she does not have to wait as long as Sarah did. And the story pretty much resolves the lack of pregnancy within the first couple verses. And so this lack of being able to have a child connects you to the Abraham story, reminds you that God is sovereign over this line in a miraculous way, but it does not dwell on there because this is not their issue. We've already seen what God does with barren women. We've already seen how he can fix that. So God is not interested in retelling that story. He's interested in going into a different story. And so she prays. And the prophecy of Yahweh is this. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from within you. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. This is the prophecy. Now, part of it is good, because part of it reminds you that God promised Abraham that he would have multiple nations. Many nations would come from him, and many people groups. So the idea that she is literally going to give birth to two children, twins, means that this is a fulfillment of God's prophecy of having two nations. But then it becomes bad because these two nations are going to be separated. No longer is Abraham producing children through Isaac that will be unified. These nations are going to be opposed with each other. And this is going to completely remind you of Ishmael and Isaac. And so this conflict between those. And so you're going to see a lot of connections to the previous stories. But we're told then that the younger will serve the older. Now, technically, this isn't real because when you're having twins, there's no such thing as one being older than the other. If we truly believe that life begins at conception, then twins are exactly the same age. But in the sense of one comes out before the other, that's where we kind of get the metaphorical idea that one is older than the other. So technically, there is no older in the twins, but in birth order, there is. And so God basically says that the older will serve the younger, which this is God's MO. God loves choosing the younger ones. He loves violating traditions. If you're going to learn anything from the Bible, one thing that keeps popping up is God violates traditions. He does not like most traditions. And so just like Ishmael was chosen over Isaac, or sorry, Isaac was chosen over Ishmael, and Jacob's going to be chosen over Esau, and then later when we get to Jacob's sons, they're going to have, the firstborn is not going to get it either. And so this is the prophecy, which means who does God want to become the firstborn? Yes, Jacob. Esau is first, Jacob is second, so God says Jacob is going to get the firstborn blessing. And that's important to remember as we go into the story. 
So when the time came, Rebecca to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out reddish all over, like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. So Esau means hairy. And that's their first impression of him. Now, here's the thing. This kid has got to be really hairy. Because later when Jacob deceives Isaac into thinking that he's Esau, he puts on goat's hair. And if you've ever felt goat hair before, it is thick and it is nappy. And so, now granted we know that Isaac is losing his eyesight and his perception and maybe even his touch, but still, this and that he's so hairy that this is what your parents name you, that must mean that it's stuck out big time. So that kind of gives you an impression of what Esau is like, that he is, and it's red. Now, this is interesting, too, because just like today, redheaded children were, were considered violent and angry. And in the ancient world, they were actually very much ostracized. There was almost a superstitious kind of demonic connection connected to children who had red hair. And so your impression, if you're a Jew living during this time period, you're probably thinking, like, that's not good. He's cursed. He's hexed or something like that. Or he's going to be an angry kid or whatever. I mean, they took it way further than what we do today. And so there's a sense that that's not good. And so they named him Esau. And when his brother came out with his hand clutching Esau's heel, they named him Jacob. Isaac was six years old when they were born. Now, Jacob, unlike what most people think, does not mean deceiver. No mother (laughs) names her kid deceiver. Like, oh, what a beautiful child. Let's name him a deceiver and a liar and a trickster. He comes out clutching the heel. Now, in Hebrew, there are no J's. The reason there's J in your English Bible is because it was first translated to German, which German doesn't really have Y's, so they replace it with J's. And so his name is really Jacob. Okay? Now, we don't know exactly how that name is pronounced. But the idea is that Jacob doesn't really even mean clutching the heel. It's a play on words with heel. And so the idea is that they name him a name that kind of sounds like clutching the heel. But clutching the heel is not clutching it and as in like tripping you up. Clutching the heel is in, oh, isn't that so cute? He's got his brother's heel. They're like connected. They're one. And it actually has the idea of dogging the heels. And that's not a term we use a lot today, but maybe more in the 50s and 70s. It's a military term for when you're marching in uniform, you stay right on the heel of the guy in front of you like a loyal dog stays right on your heel, ready for the command, ready to protect you. So the idea is that they name him Yaqab as in the guardian of his older brother. They see him as a protector. They see him as a twin connected to him, a guardian, a protector, one who will be connected. And so that's what Yaqab's name really means. Now remember, it's not exactly what it means in its literal definition, but it sounds like that. And, and I think we're beginning to realize that most names don't mean what they mean. They're just words that they've used to, because they sound like some other meaning. So that they're not exactly saying heel grabber all the time, but they're saying something that sounds like that so that they, that name stands out unique and distinct, but at the same time it has a 
phonetic connection to the meaning of something. And so this is what they name him. And so from the beginning, you have this idea of the parents' hope and dreams that they'll be connected in contrast to the prophecy that they're going to be at odds with each other. And so this is how the story begins. So fast forward to the boys now at a marriageable age. And verse 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the open fields. But Jacob was an even-tempered man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for fresh game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So right now you're told that Esau is a wild, adventurous, outgoing kind of a man. And Jacob is a more quiet, introverted person who'd rather stay in the tent and, I don't know, read books or whatever. And it doesn't say that um, Esau is necessarily a hot-tempered person, but the fact that it says, but Jacob was even-tempered means that you probably can conclude that Esau is hot-tempered, and especially when we get into the story, you're going to eh, yeah, he is. Okay, so they're complete opposites in every single way. Now, notice the favoritism. This is what's new with this family. Isaac favors Esau over Rebekah. Now, I love the NIV's translation. The NIV says, because Isaac loved tasty meat. Okay? That's why he favors him. And so Esau is a hunter, and he knows how to bring back meat, and Isaac loves food. And he loves meat specifically, and Esau knows how to get that. And you might think that's a ridiculous reason to favor one kid over another, but really think about your life. <laughs> we favor people over really selfish, they can get me certain things. Like, ooh, I like them. They get me my favorite whatever. Seriously? So, and that can subconsciously play into a favoritism. And so Rebecca loves Jacob. Now, is that a reaction to Isaac favoring Esau? Or is it because Jacob is more around more often and then the mother is, has more of a connection like that? We don't know. All we know is there's different favoritism. And this favoritism is going to blow up in everybody's face later in the story. So one day, Jacob is cooking a stew. And when Esau came in from the open field, he was famished. So Esau said to Jacob, feed me some of that red stuff. Yes, this red stuff, because I am starving. That is why he's called Edom. So he also had this nickname of Red. And it was a connection to the fact that he had red hair at the same time that he loved the red stew, at the same time that when Esau has his descendants, they'll be called Edomites, and they're going to move to a region south of Israel that is known for its really thick red dirt. And so this red is going to play in multiple areas of his life of this pun. And so they're going to have the Edomites, who are going to be named after his nickname, Red. And so he comes in. Now he is famished. He is hungry. He is starving, which might be a little overreaction in a family that is incredibly wealthy with abundant livestock, and they're being blessed by God like you would not believe. And yet he's starving, and he can't wait to make his own food. He has to eat right now. And so he sees a stew. It's a thick, morsel, kind of a meat and potatoes kind of a stew, not maybe literally, but thick like that, hearty, a man soup, and he asked for it. 
But Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, this immediately shows Jacob as witty, deceiving, plotting, and thinking things in advance. Nobody comes and says, I'm really hungry, and your first reaction is birthright. <laughs> that means he's been thinking about this for a while. He wants the birthright, and he's been plotting how to get it. It's on his mind all the time, and he's waiting for the opportunity, and Esau gave it to him. And so we, that's our first impression of Esau, Jacob when he finally goes to the action. We're told a little bit about them, but this is the first time we see them speak. And our first reaction is a man who's a little overdramatic, I'm hungry. And Jacob, who is automatically right there, witty, plotting, ready to get something. And that's our first impression to them both. He says, I'm about ready to die. There's your overdramatic. <laughs> okay? What use is a birthright to me? I don't know. It's your inheritance for the rest of your life. That's a huge purpose. But this immediately tells us that Esau is a creature of the now. The fact that all he can think about is he's hungry now. He can't delay that hunger for the sake of preparing his own meal. He is, can't think about the benefit of birthright that's going to come later down the road. All he can think about is he's hungry now. And so all he thinks about is now. And so he says, I will give it to you. But Jacob said, swear an oath to me. So Esau swore an oath to him and sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's pathetic. That's pathetic. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. That sleight of hand. Jacob noticed the deception. He's making this thick, hearty stew. And Esau comes in and says, I want that stew. But when Jacob negotiates with him, he doesn't say stew. He just says stuff. Because all Esau really technically added, added, asked for stuff. And so when he, they make an oath to get the stuff, Jacob brings out this lentils and hands it to him. And it's not the thick, hearty, meaty stew. It's just a soup. And it says that Esau ate, drank, and then got up and went out. Those real quick verbs, ate, drank, got up, and left, suggest that it was very quick action meaning that Esau might have ate that in total silence, realizing that he had been gypped. He had been tricked. He thought he was getting a thick, hearty stew. Instead, he just got lentils and some bread. And there's nothing he can do about it because he's not the witty one. And so he just gave up for his birthright for something that he didn't even really want. But here's the most important line and the entire story. So Esau despised his birthright. That's the narrator. And that despise is like a deep hatred, a deep loathing. And what the narrator is telling you is that a bowl of soup was more important than, to Esau than the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Because this isn't just his inheritance. This is a man who is a descendant of Abraham, which means the birthright is also the Abrahamic covenant. 
And by this age, in his 40s, he knows what the Abrahamic covenant is. This isn't a 10-year-old boy giving it up for a soup. This is a grown man, and he's giving it up. And so right off the bat, you're going to find out later, Jacob is not really that great of a guy. And so God doesn't really have good choice versus bad choice of giving this birthright to. But what he does, one of the reasons why Jacob is going to get it is because Esau doesn't even value it. Character-wise, neither one are good characters. But at least Jacob values it. At least Jacob wants it. And so this day, we immediately begin the story of Esau and Jacob learning one. God has given the inheritance to Jacob. And two, Esau doesn't really even value the inheritance. And so this becomes the foundation for the rest of the story. Now we pause in chapter 26, verse 1. And we're brought back to Isaac. This is the only chapter that Isaac is the main character in, in the entire book of Genesis. He is a minor character in the sacrifice, a minor character when Rebekah comes back home and the first, just the last couple of verses, he's a minor character in praying um, to God, which is the only time that we have Isaac praying to God too, is to find out what's going on with Rebekah. And now he becomes a major character, but this is the only time. So we learned that there was a famine in the land, subsequent to the earlier famine that occurred in the days of Abraham. So this is a different famine. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, at Gerar. And Yahweh appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Settle down in the land that I will point out to you. And here's what's interesting. The last time we had a famine, Abraham did not trust God, and he went to Egypt for protection. It's almost like God knows, well, it's not almost, God does know, exactly what Isaac is about ready to do. So this time he heads him off and says, don't go to Egypt, okay? Go to the land that I'll show you, which is close to um, Beersheba, or Abimelech, the guy that we first encountered with Abraham back in the previous chapter. And so he stayed in the land. I will be with you and bless you, for I will give you all the lands to you and to your descendants, and I will fulfill the solemn promise that I made to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants so they will be as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and all the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the name of your descendants. All this will come to pass because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws." So notice that God comes to them and reiterates the Abraham promises of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But notice that what is different here is because Abraham obeyed me. And this is God's unconditional promise. That no matter what Isaac does or does not do, he's going to get the promises because of the faithfulness of Abraham that made this covenant unconditional. So when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he replied, She is my sister. He was afraid to say, she is my wife, for he thought to himself, the men of the place will kill me to get Rebekah because she is very beautiful. So the sins of the father have been passed down. And I think we are old enough to know that we are doing a lot of things that our parents did because it was modeled to us so many times. So he does the same thing. Now, once again, this story, like the second time with Abraham, just kind of skips over all the nitty-gritty details and gets to 
the punchline, so to speak. After Isaac had been there for a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, happened to look out the window and observed Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Now, this, most scholars believe that this chapter happens before the birth of the two sons. Mostly because if they had two sons, there's no way they could be living there for a long time and nobody not knowing that they're married. If you have two kids running around, there's no way people are going to be like, oh, they're not married? I was so shocked. Like, really? So the fact that there's no kids running around suggests that the reality is they finally realize it. And Abimelech, shocked, because he's taken this woman as his wife, looks out and sees her being affectionate with her brother. And all of a sudden he realizes, no, oh, wait a minute, something's not right here. So he goes to, so Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife? Why did you say this to me? She is my sister, Isaac replied, because I thought someone might kill me to get to her. Now we know at this point Isaac is definitely lying. We weren't sure with Abraham talking about Sarah, but we know that Rebecca is not a sister. And so this is the exact same thing over again. And Abimelech explained, exclaimed, what in the world have you done to us? One of the men might easily have had sexual relations with your wife, and you have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech commanded all the people, whoever touches his man or his wife will surely be put to death. And so, once again, this is showing a threat to the promises of God. Because if the kids have not been born yet, then that children could have come from somebody else, which would be very dangerous. And that's the end of the story. And we don't need a lot of details. We just need to know that Isaac is doing the same thing that his father did. So then we learn that Isaac planted in that land, and he re-reaped in the same year a hundred times what he had sown, because Yahweh blessed him. The man became wealthy. His influence continued to grow until he became very prominent. He had so many sheep and cattle and such a great household of servants that the Philistines became jealous of him. So the Philistines took dirt and filled up all the wells that his father's servant had dug back in the days of Father Abraham. So Isaac is becoming so successful that where before with Abraham, people were seeing him and wanting to be a part of Abraham's blessings, Now, after Abraham being blessed and Isaac being blessed, people are starting to see this more of a threat now, that this family is getting bigger and bigger, and they're starting to have more kids, and they're starting to become almost a kingdom in themselves, and now they become threatening and scary. And so they begin to fill up the wells. And so Isaac digs a well, and they fill it up. So he goes in further away and digs another well, and they fill it up. And he goes further away, and they dig it in. And notice that Isaac never fights for this. We see his passivity, even the fact that he just keeps moving further away. Okay, they took my well. He doesn't lodge any complaints. He doesn't try to um, attack them. I'm not saying that's what he should do. It's just we notice that he doesn't do anything. He just keeps moving further away until eventually he digs a well that nobody takes because it's probably too far away for them to try to grab it. And so that's where the story kind of ends. So Isaac held a feast So when they have this happen, this is very important for you to understand. One of the reasons that a lot of scholars say that this story might be in the middle, because it feels out of place. You have Jacob and Esau, and then you come to this weird story that's kind of like Abraham and the digging wells and taking them, and then we jump back into the Jacob-Esau story again. And then it's out of chronological order because it's before the kids are born. And the question is, 
We know this is not a mistake, but why is it here? What is it trying to make the point? And part of it is this. Abraham was very active in his faith, and God blessed him. Isaac is very passive, and God is blessing him. God is not approving of one personality or the other. I don't even think you should interpret passivity as a good thing. But the point is that no matter what their personality and character traits are, God blesses them because he is faithful to his promises. And I think that's the point. But why here? Why sandwiched between the deception of Jacob with the soup and then the second deception of Jacob with the goat's hair? And I think the point is Jacob doesn't have to be deceptive. He doesn't have to seize things and take them on his own. By the fact that you have this dysfunctional family in this chapter and a dysfunctional family in this chapter followed by people deceiving each other and then you have this passive father who's still being blessed by God shoves the aggressive dysfunctionality of their family in your face even more. It's called a foil. So if you take Arnold Schwarzenegger and put him next to, like, Bruce Lee, they both look strong. But if you take Arnold Schwarzenegger and put him next to Urkel from Family Matters or some scrawny kid, the scrawny kid becomes a foil to the strong one because now he looks really strong. And so one of the things that the Bible does is uses these foils by setting somebody up in order to emphasize something about the main character even more. So Lot and his constant walking away and lack of faith becomes a foil to Abraham to really make Abraham shine even more in his faithfulness as he stands next to somebody who's not faithful. And so this story becomes a foil to the deception and the dysfunctional nature of Jacob and Esau in this chapter and the dysfunctional and deception of Jacob and Esau in this chapter. And you have this passive guy who's still being blessed by God emphasizes how far off track they really are. There was no need for them to be deceiving. There was no need for them to be dysfunctional. God blesses you no matter what because he made promises. And it really makes those two stories stand out even more as this is not right. There is something seriously wrong with this family. And so it also makes you wonder why they're so aggressive and so dysfunctional if they've been raised by a passive father. If they've been raised by a passive father. And so eventually Abimelech comes back to him and says, oh, by the way, I think I actually want to make a covenant with you. (laughs) I see that no matter what happens, you're getting blessed. Make a treaty with me. And so in verse 29, it says, so that all you will not do any harm, just as we have not harmed you, but you've always treated you well before sending you away in peace. How you are blessed of Yahweh. So he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger no matter how many wells are being taken away from him. And Abimelech fears being attacked, which is ironic because Isaac is the least likely of everybody in the family to attack anybody, especially when we get to Jacob's sons. We're going to say, wait till you fear them. So Isaac held a feast for them and they celebrated. Early in the morning, the men made a treaty with each other and Isaac sent them off and they separate on good terms. That day, Isaac's servants came to him and told him about the well that they had dug. We have found water, they reported. So he named the place Sheba. That is why the name of the city has been called Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, 
He married Judith, the daughter of Barry, the Hittite, as well as Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they caused Isaac and Rebekah great anxiety. So this brings you back in. And here's the point. Isaac is so passive that he didn't even get a wife for his kids. When they become marriageable age, Abraham is seeking a wife for his son. Jacob is going to seek a wife for his sons. But Isaac doesn't seek a son for his own or a wife. And so the reality is he's passive. He's not getting them daughters or wives. But not only that, this shows you Esau's character again because he's marrying Canaanite women, Hittites, which Abraham has already made it very clear, do not intermarry with them. Hittite women, Canaanite women were known to seduce. So normal times when you married a Mesopotamian woman, she would submit and fall in line with the religion and the ideas of her husband. Canaanite and Hittite women sexually seduced their husbands and um, perverted them and tried to corrupt them. And that's one of the reasons that they're forbidden in marriage, because they're different. And so we see Esau, who is marrying Canaanite women. Two, he's becoming polygamous. And three, this is creating more dysfunctionality in the family because it is a huge thorn in the side of Isaac and Rebekah. But Isaac can't say no to Esau because he likes his tasty meat. 